You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky, and welcome to Her Money. When you think about how you want to raise your kids, you want them to be grounded and giving. You want them to be intellectually curious. You want them to be kind. You want them to be the opposite of spoiled, which just happens to be the title of the best-selling book by Ron Lieber, who's also the Your Money columnist for the New York Times. He's got some personal experience in this area as well. He and his wife, Jody Cantor, you may also know from the New York Times, are raising two daughters. Ron, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So it's your first day back from paternity leave. It is. And, you know, before I bellyache about how I wish it was so much longer, I should say how lucky I am to work for an employer that does offer paid parental leave, not just for the moms, but for the dads, too. So I got six weeks paid and then took a bunch of unpaid weeks, too, to try and stretch it as long as I possibly could. And your your daughter is seven months old now? Is that what you said? Yes. Uh, our youngest daughter, Violet, is seven seven months old now, and our older daughter, Talia, is 10. Congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations. So when you look at the universe of parents, give us a grade. How are we doing when it comes to teaching our kids about money? I'd give us a B minus, um, which is an improvement over where our parents were, I think, not to cast too much shade on the people who raised us. But I think we grew up at a time, you know, those of us who grew up in the 60s or 70s or 80s grew up at a time when talking about money was impolite. It Mm -hmm. was impolitic. It was considered age inappropriate. And kids who asked about money at all, really, especially in front of other grown-ups, were considered to be rude. And we're told in no uncertain terms, in many cases, just not to do that. And they didn't do it again. It is none of your business. That was the typical response, which is problematic for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, it's a lie. I'm not a big believer in lying to children. And, you know, the revenues and the expenses in your household absolutely impact your kids. Right? Well, I think when people answered that question, and I, I just want to say I'm giving my parents a pass here because I was, I don't know that I ever asked that question, but my parents, my parents were, um, my father was a college professor for many years who then later started to run TV stations. My mother was in and out of the teaching world. Um, when I was a, a young child, we did not have a lot of money. Um, and my parents were very open about the fact that there were things that we needed and things that we wanted, and those things were different. And I, I remember sitting down as we were planning a trip to Disney World with the family piggy bank and opening it up and all sitting around and counting whether we had enough for the admissions tickets. So it was it was definitely it. my my parents I think get a get a pass on the on the bad parenting there. But you started a huge kerfuffle. Is it a kerfuffle or a kerfluffle? 
I, I proudly cop to any and all kerfuffle stories. Okay, so you, <laughs> when when the book launched originally, and now the opposite of spoiled is out in paperback. When you launched the book, you wrote a story about why you should tell children how much you make, and the internet lit up. You got 600-plus reader comments the weekend that the story ran in the New York Times. The Today Show turned the story into a poll, and 70% of people said, do not talk about this. 30% said it teaches the value of the dollar. How do you feel about this particular kerfuffle? You know, I'm glad it got people talking. I feel like knowing how much money your parents make and how much money they have is actually an entitlement for kids in their late uh, teenage years. And it's information that they are entitled to because it's part of what we ought to be teaching them. What did it actually take for us to give you whatever life uh, we have been able to give you, uh, for you to live whatever life to which you become accustomed? Um, If you don't have that information when it comes time to leave home, whether you're going to college or not, how are you going to know what it is that you want to do or what it is that you want to study or that the goals that you want to set, the financial goals for yourself, if you don't actually know what it took to run the life that you had during your teenage years? It just makes no sense to me that we would hide this from kids. How detailed do you have to get? I mean, I wonder as we try to toe the line between raising kids who are appreciative of the lives that they have and kids that are materialistic, for lack of a better word. Is there a point at which the information is is too much or becomes almost ammunition that they don't need? Well, you speak as if there's potential danger here. You even use a weaponized term there, ammunition, which I find interesting. And I totally get where that comes from because one of the biggest fears that parents have around financial transparency is that kids will blab and it will sound like bragging and that will make the family look bad. So I don't advocate transparency for kids who are not ready. Uh, Part of the process here is spending 10 or 15 years getting them ready, and they're not ready until they're teenagers. And at the end, after they know everything about how your budget breaks down and they have all the information they need about where that money goes, you have to explain to them that this information, while it's no longer secret in the family, it's still private. And if you go spreading it around and talking about it and it sounds like you're bragging, people are going to think that you're a jerk, especially your peers. So if you have that conversation by the end, they're probably not going to blab. And then that information, it can't be weaponized. I don't see how it would be. I think my concern was actually coming from a different place. And and my kids are a little bit older than your kids. And I'm, I'm dying for somebody someday to do a twin study where they look at whether kids are born savers or born spenders, because I've got one of each. And And I feel like I raised them largely in the same way, but maybe not. But my my fear was, okay, if your children know that you have resources, their feeling for how you allocate those resources may be different than your feeling. And I've had a lot of discussions with my daughter in particular about this is not how I choose to use this money. And when it's your money, then you can choose. And that is precisely the point, because transparency almost forces us to also disclose the values that we have around money and to attempt at least to imprint some of those same values on our 
kids. Talking about money is talking about feelings, is talking about values, right? And so that transparency will force those conversations, but it's actually good because how else are they going to understand? How else are we going to model for them how we make our own financial decisions so that we can give them, you know, an edge on figuring out how to make theirs too and ones that they'll feel comfortable with, not just financially, but uh, emotionally. Do you find there is a difference in how parents talk to girls versus how they talk to boys? Time Time Magazine did some reporting on this, and they, they found that boys are more likely to get lectures in borrowing and budgeting and saving, and girls are more likely to get lectures on spending and checking and overall, you know, family finances, which feels so awkward to me in this day that women are starting to become breadwinners in more families. As the father of two daughters, um, the discrepancies drive me bananas. Um, you know, I've heard and seen some of the same research that you have. Um, another thing that girls get talked to about a lot more than boys is is philanthropy, right? So you're talking to the girls about giving it away as opposed to earning it or spending it or investing it. Um, the net result of, of these discrepancies and this disparity, um, a number of polls have shown, is that if you pull teenage girls on what they expect to earn their first year out of college and then again at mid-career, um, they inevitably across the board in multiple surveys um, project that they will earn somewhere between 20 and 30 percent less than the boys do. So if you are the parent of a girl uh, or girls, um, keep this data in mind. And if your girl isn't asking you about money, if your daughters aren't interested, you need to have these conversations and check yourself, even if you think you're doing a good job, because you don't want to end up on the wrong side of those numbers. It's just wrong. One of the things that my mother taught me from a very young age is that you have to expect a lot of people because people only live up to your expectations. And if we're expecting that our daughters will earn so much less than our sons, of course they're going to earn less. Of yeah. course they're going to earn less and we're never going to solve the wage gap. Um, I want to talk about so many other things. I want to talk about the mobility and invisibility of money. I want to talk a little more about materialism. But before we go there, I want to take a little break um, and tell everybody how the Her Money podcast came to be. It actually came out of a brainstorming session that I had with a few of the top women at Fidelity Investments. We were thinking about different ways to get more women talking about money, how to save it and invest it and put together a plan for the future. And somebody said podcasts. There are so few podcasts for women by women. And Ron, I got to say, we, we haven't been doing this for that long, but you are our first man on the show. I'm so, honored. There you go. And we thought about this. We thought, all right, we don't want to just have women. We wanted to have this conversation with smart, interesting guests like you and answer questions from listeners and talk about why money can be so emotional and frustrating all at the same time. So I'm thrilled that Fidelity was willing to work with me to bring her money to life. For more financial resources, check out fidelity.com slash it's time. We're back with Ron Lieber, author of The Opposite of Spoiled, now out in paperback. One of the problems that I think today's kids have with money is that they don't see it enough. That, that if you think about how money moves, and, and my kids are Venmo kids, and believe me, Venmo has, has raised invisibility to a whole new level. But when you think about how money moves, our paychecks land by direct deposit. 
We pay our bills online. You know, sometimes you need a little bit of cash, but not if you're Ubering everywhere. And, and this, it's, it's a lot harder to keep track of and to feel like it's real if you never see it. So how do you teach kids about money in the age of invisibility? Yeah, I'm a strong advocate for a re-visceralization of money. We want money to be a visceral experience, a tactile experience, a visual experience where uh, the kids count it and keep it and store it and watch it, not through just any jar, but a jar that is transparent that you can see through, not an opaque jar or a piggy bank that's ceramic, but one where they can actually see the money growing, they can take it out frequently and see how much they have. And I think you want to keep them on a cash system starting from the beginning of allowance at, you know, five or six or seven, um, as long as you possibly can. Quite often it's the parents who want to move away from cash because it's such a pain to keep track of all the singles and the weekly amounts and oh my gosh. But for the kids, I mean, I'll never forget the experience of watching my daughter um, spend some of her own money for the first time. She had these fistful of bowl bills from her jars and I remember she was walking the vendor row at Lollapalooza. This was three or four summers ago, you know, determined to buy herself like the best $12 pair of earrings that she possibly could. And she was so proud of this little fistful of cash. I wouldn't trade that memory for anything. And I think we should extend the cash economy with our children as long as we possibly can. I I came away um, from the cash economy with my kids when they were, I think my daughter was 12 and my son was 14 or 15. And I did it for me. I, I did it for me rather than for them because I was a particularly bad allowance giver and I never had the cash. And then they would come back to me and they'd say, you owe me for four weeks. And I didn't know if that was true or not. So I just paid up and inevitably then felt like I paid too much. And um, and so I put them on a system of uh, where I opened checking accounts for them linked to my checking account. They would get their money automatically. It was a little bit of a pain until they started driving quite frankly, because until they started driving and could get themselves to the ATM to get cash, I had to be the ATM. So we would we would have this little exercise where we would sit down in front of the computer and I would transfer money back out of their accounts and give them cash. But it was very systemized. They had to watch it. Um, and it helped when they when they went off to college, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, I'm I'm all for giving them, you know, a number of years of training on plastic, debit preferably, so they can't spend more than they actually have. But, you know, I still think the longer that we can keep the cash in their hands, um, the stronger connection they'll feel to their money when it comes time to, you know, have it be ones and zeros in a digital bank account. How important is it that kids work to earn their own money? I think it's essential, but, you know, parents have many parents have a much different definition of work and hard work than they used to. Uh, some parents now default to, you know, hard work and a work ethic as being something that you develop only in school. And it's enough for the kid to be a good worker and a hard worker when it comes to their studies. I don't think it's enough. I don't think their first experience of earning money should come uh, when they get their very first full-time paycheck at the age of 22. There's so much to learn uh, and to practice. And there's real power that comes from earning money from someone other than your mom or your dad or some other relative. When that light bulb goes on, their money is so much more valuable than any money you've ever given them, right? Because they, I remember seeing that light in my son's eyes when he realized it took me two hours to earn this $10 or whatever it was. I I, I don't quite remember, but 
all of a sudden they make the connection between value and being able to translate that value into buying other things of value. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's absolutely true. And, you know, talking about things of value, there's probably nothing that we spend more on for them uh, before we kick them out um, than we do on their college educations. Um, And, you know, I'm a big believer in the fact that uh, every child should contribute no matter how much money their parents have. Um, And you should set a goal, a benchmark where they are going to contribute, uh, you know, X amount of dollars or as one family in my book did, um, they ordered all four of the kids to pay for the entire entire first semester of tuition, not room and board, but just tuition themselves. The very last kid wrote a check for $22,000. Wow. And turns out you can earn that much in four summers. You don't have to work every day after school. You can earn that much in four summers uh, after high school, in the summers of high school, if you really put your mind to it. And these kids did it. Their parents helped. They drive them around. They drove them around. So the kids had driver's licenses, got them to their jobs. But um, these kids did it. Uh, all kids can do it. And I think it's good for them to do it. We touched a little bit on the topic of materialism, which I think is, is um, boy, it's it's the word that I associate with spoiled. And it's it's what we don't want for for our kids. You've got a concept called the 30% rule. So can you explain the 30% rule and how you sort of draw the line? Yeah, so the 30% rule was born of an incredible encounter I had uh, with a guy whose permanent location has to remain nameless because he only shared (laughs) the story with me if he could remain anonymous. But it was a crazy tale. He grew up in a relatively affluent community with parents who basically bought him nothing. He finds out 15 or 20 years later his father is dying, that his father has this crazy $15 million real estate portfolio. So his dad dies, the son inherits a big pile of money and immediately retires at the age of 30 with this pile of money. Then he becomes a dad and he's got to decide what kind of dad he's going to be. And so he had the money at that point to get his daughters all of the things that his parents never got for him. And it was really tempting. But that wasn't what he did. That wasn't what he wanted his kids to be about. And he ended up in this sort of, you know, cumulative average where his daughters in general were, you know, the seven kids out of 10 to get whatever, like, the next most exciting thing was. And, you know, he didn't keep that careful track, but he always wanted to make sure that they were, you know, basically in the 30th percentile, that 70% of the kids were getting the stuff before his kids were. He felt like it was important to wait. He didn't want to deprive them of things, but that waiting was good. Um, Now, your percentage, uh, you know, might be different. Um, and it may be different in different categories. Or you may resent the idea of having some label or rule attached. But it's helpful to set a benchmark and keep score a little bit. Well, and I, I think it's helpful for your kids to know we operate this way. These are our rules and that, that it is a value judgment, that whether you have a ton of money or not a ton of money, money is a limited resource and you have to make choices. Mm-hmm. And that waiting is good. It turns out there are way fewer opportunities for kids to wait in general than there used to be. You don't have to wait at Blockbuster. You don't have to wait for the television commercials. You don't have to wait to use the phone. Right. But waiting is a really important grown up financial skill. If you can't wait for 50 years, you're probably going to work the rest of your life because you won't have saved enough, been patient enough to put the money away for retirement. OK. Lightning round here. Um, there are a number of things that you handle in the book. And I just want your quick take on how do you handle each of these things? The tooth fairy. The first time the tooth fairy comes. 
I would suggest a more creative approach than just dropping a dollar bill under the pillow. You could uh, give animal teeth. Um, you could spread fairy dust and give books or coins from other countries. Think of something memorable for your kid that maybe doesn't involve a precise dollar amount. Chores. Chores. Don't pay for chores. Grown-ups don't get paid for chores. No reason kids should either. Um, if you're looking for leverage over them, take away something that they like to do as opposed to getting the money each week. Saving money. Well, if you're starting allowance, I think there should be three jars. Uh, share or give, uh, spend for discretionary pur- purchases and impulse buys, and save. Um, I, every kid should learn to save. Uh, they should have a goal. For the younger ones, it might be a short or medium-term goal. Um, they could paste the thing that they want on the front of the save jar, and you can match their savings to incentivize them if you want. Do you mandate how much of their allowance they have to save? I think parents should. I don't have sort of a prescribed percentage because it may be different for different families. Um, in my family, I had to save just about everything I earned because we didn't have enough for me to go to college. So if your family is like that, a lot of the money's got to get saved for college. Um, but even if you can buy the sun and the moon and the stars, I still think it's good to teach kids to wait and be patient. So it should be a decent chunk. Cell phones? Cell phones are a need not a want, but smartphones are a want and not a need. And so if your kid really wants a smartphone with roving internet access, great, but make them pay the difference between the dumb phone that you would buy with the texting and the voice service that they need and the roving internet access that they want. Yeah, don't get me started on data. Holidays. Many families have developed um, terrific systems around keeping things from getting too out of hand uh, in terms of materialism when it comes to the holidays. Um, one of the things that we do in our family now is that we've built a holiday ritual around a dinner time conversation that actually extends over several dinner times about what we gave away to whom and why during the year. So we talk about um, essentially how we allocate our family's giving and we make piles on the dinner table with Black beans, 100 beans representing, um, you know, for every $100 we give away, this is how we divide it. And we talk about that and we debate whether some of the beans should be moved and what we want to prioritize for next year. So that feels in the spirit of holiday giving. I love too. that. I, I think that's a fabulous, fabulous tradition. Um, all right. Last question. This is not part of our lightning round, but we ask everybody this. It's our little itty-bitty Proust questionnaire. Love, fame, power, or money? Rank order them for me. Love, money, fame, power. Ron Lieber, thank you so much. Please come back again. You're terrific. Thank you. Kelly Hultgren is joining me in the studio with this week's batch of Q&As. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Jean. You have a good weekend? Had a great weekend. How about you? Mine was pretty good. Good. Pretty good. Not too bad. All right. What do we have? We have some great questions from your fans today. Here's one from Facebook. Jean, I have a question about my daughter. She has been getting an allowance for several years now in the amount of her age in dollars each week. She puts half into savings. My question is, to maximize the use of her savings, should it stay in her credit union savings account? Or should we put it in something else, like a Roth IRA, something to jumpstart her retirement future so she doesn't have to save as much later in life? Any tips? And do you have a book suited for kids? We have all your books for adults, but we're curious if you had one for kids. 
And by the way, she's currently 11 and a half. I, that was exactly what I wanted to know. I wanted to know how old she is. So a Roth IRA for a child is a really, really terrific idea because it helps them get started with investing and gives them the opportunity to see the money grow. The problem is that your child has to have income equal to the Roth contribution that you or they make for themselves. So once your child is spending the summer working at camp or working in the local hardware store or doing anything where they're going to file a tax return, then you can make the Roth contribution. At this point, I think savings is a fine way to add the money up. And and if you want to inspire her to get to a goal faster, you may want to consider a homegrown 401k where you offer to match the contributions that she's making to achieve the goal. We're trying to build good habits here. And, and you want to see her not only save, but succeed in saying, this is what I want to do with my money, and then actually getting there. And and I do have a book for kids. It's called Not Your Parents Money Book. I wrote it a couple of years ago, and it's it's really targeted to middle school age kids, although I know a lot of parents who've said they've learned something too. I love that she puts half into savings. That's a really good savings rate. If you can continue that with her, that would be terrific. But just that she is saving half or whatever percentage of whatever she takes in is the is the important thing. It's the habit of saving over a lifetime. We have another kids-related question coming in on Facebook. Jennifer Kiruz asks, should you run credit reports annually on your children? I received a text on my phone addressed to my daughter offering better rates on car insurance. She is only 11 but has a cell phone. I am concerned that someone may have attempted to steal her identity. How do I go about this? A really important question. We, Yeah, this is a kids-themed show, starting with Ron and all the way down the line. So here, here's what you want to do. Just like you go to annualcreditreport.com to pull your credit report, go to annualcreditreport.com and try to pull a credit report on your kids. You'll have to type in your daughter's social security number, and the goal is just to see if something pops up. Your child at age 11 should not have a credit report. And if they do, that's a sign that something fishy is going on. You want to look at that credit report. You'll want to go through the process of reporting it to the authorities if it looks like your child has been victimized. But it's really important to start doing this for your kids because we know that child ID theft has become a bigger problem in recent years. Is it the same for children in going about remediation? Yeah, absolutely. If you find that your child has been a victim of ID theft, you're going to want to put either a fraud alert or a freeze on their credit report as soon as possible. I'd suggest a freeze because you don't want anybody establishing credit in their name, and that's the stronger of the two protections. You're also going to want to file a police report and report it to the FTC. Our next question comes from Emily. She wrote us at jeanchatsky.com. Emily refinanced her student loans and got a great rate. And it looks like her and her husband also were able to receive personal loans to pay off all of their credit cards. So now she's wondering what to do with all of her credit cards. She would prefer to cut them up, but she's not sure if she's supposed to use them and pay them off monthly Mm -hmm. to keep her credit score high and they're going in the right direction. Uh, but that's what got her into trouble before. And it looks like she has a number of high interest rate store cards. And she's listing about 10 here, it looks like. Okay, enough said. So I get it. She's got a ton of credit cards and she's trying to figure out whether or not to get rid of some of them. 
If she's applying for a mortgage or a car loan in the next six months to a year, that is not the time to be getting rid of credit cards. But if you're not in that window, and in particular, if you feel like these credit cards are an accident waiting to happen, you want to get rid of them. And that means just very slowly going through the process of closing cards. The department store cards are good ones to start with because they tend not to have very high credit limits, which means that the impact on your score is not going to be particularly great. So I would start there, close two, wait a couple months, close two more, wait a couple months, keep going until you get rid of them. And as for your um, bank cards, the visas, the MasterCards, the ones with the the larger limits, figure out which ones you're actually going to use, whether they have rewards that you like or a low interest rate. Make sure that you hold on to those and, and you can slowly get rid of the rest. And is there any harm in just keeping them open and cutting them up? Um, not really. If they have an annual fee, you'll then have to continue to pay that annual fee. So I like to get rid of cards that have annual fees, particularly if you're not using them. So whatever you have to do, some people freeze them in ice. Some people give them to their mother. Whatever you have to do not to use all the excess capacity just do it. And the next time you're walking through a store when they offer you a store credit card for getting 15% off, just say no. And now it's time for our weekly Thrive segment. Today's Thrive segment actually falls right in line with the conversation that we've been having with Ron Lieber. New research from T. Rowe Price shows that parents are totally willing to overspend on their kids, but they really don't want to talk about money with them. According to their annual Parents, Kids, and Money survey, nearly half of parents have gone into debt for something that their kids wanted. And quite possibly worse, the kids expect their parents to do it. 57% of kids agreed with the statement, I expect my parents to buy me what I want. It's no wonder that over half of parents are worried about going overboard and spoiling them. Oh, and to top it all off, three-quarters of parents are reluctant to even tee up financial conversations with them, which, as we know from Ron, is an important thing to do if you want to raise financially literate, grateful, grounded kids. So here's how to get the conversation started and to set the right expectations. Aim for a money talk at least once a week. If you needed another reason to start talking about money, the study also finds that parents who discuss financial matters with their kids at least once a week are nearly twice as likely to have kids who say they're smart about money. Second, Keep it gender neutral. Parents talk to their boys more about money, but they say it's because the boys need more help with it. I don't care what the reason is. That is not a good precedent to set. Making gender-based distinctions when choosing which money topics to bring up with your kids can result in girls growing up to be unprepared for retirement and lacking the confidence that they need to start investing. Plus, it is quite possible that your daughters will be their family's primary breadwinners, so you need to set them up for success. Third, Encourage your kids to earn their own money. 
I know from watching my own kids that they don't appreciate the value of money until they make it themselves. Very quickly, their money becomes much more valuable than your money. And finally, emphasize wants versus needs, and then make sure that they use some of their own hard-earned money to buy at least some of those things that they want and need. All right, to wrap it all together, your relationship with and communication around money is setting the standards for the kids. Where your kids are concerned, you are the expert. So if you're not already, start having money conversations with them at least once a week and keep it green, not pink or blue. Encourage them to start earning their own money and to differentiate between the things they want and the things they need. One good way to do that, ask them what happens if they don't have it. The distinction becomes immediately clear. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Ron Lieber for a terrific conversation. Again, his book, The Opposite of Spoiled. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes. You'll find it at Her Money. Her Money is one word with Gene Chatsky. Her Money with Gene Chatsky. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next week when we'll be talking with Linda Kaplan-Baylor and Robin Koval. You know them as the women behind the Aflac Duck. Aflac. They invented that advertising campaign. And now they're here to talk about their new book, From Grit to Great. We're excited about that. It should be fun. So tune in. <laughs> 